Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Mitis Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Michael Lunig in conversation with David Laser, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Mitis Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronmitisfestival.com. Thank you. My name's David Laser. It's my great pleasure and privilege to share the stage today with one of Australia's 100 living national treasures. A man, whom, uh, <laughs> a man whom playwright David Williamson has seen fit to describe as one of the great Australians of our age. He's been called the whimsical prophet, the sad sage, the Melbourne oracle, the soul of a nation. He's an institution, an ideas fest, a palliative for troubled hearts, a philosopher, an observer of life, a psychologist, a conduit to the child inside us, and of course, arguably, Australia's most beloved cartoonist. Our guest of honour today is an author, poet, painter, and historian of the absurd. <laughs> he is the subject of exhibitions, retrospectives, and scholarly debate. He appears on our fridges <laughs> and calendars, and I dare say, in our dreams. He's been adapted for television, theatre, and radio, and been a collaborator with Neil Finn, Richard Tonietti, Peter Garrett, and Byron's very own Guyane. Always, always a source of poignant, joyful, beautiful, imaginative, hilarious comfort. He is a man who would pen a poem such as this, called The Path to Your Door. The path to your door is the path within, is made by animals, is lined with flowers, is lined by thorns, is stained with wine, is lit by the lamp of sorrowful dreams, is washed with joy, is swept with grief, is blessed by the lonely traffic of art, is known by heart, is known by prayer, is lost and found, is always strange, the path to your door. So on that note, would you please join me in welcoming to our door, from somewhere near Curly Flat, Michael Looney. Thank you. Thank you, David. That's an awful lot to live up to. And um, I've also been called a bastard from time to time, too. <laughs> but but I, d I don't think... Um, I, I carry it all equally. Um, I think people are pleased to see you, Michael. Thanks, and David. Not for the bastard I, understand, in you. I um, understand what you're trying to do here. <laughs> I'll go along with it for, for this time Stay with together. me. Please. And thanks to everybody for being here. I really never fail to be overwhelmed and appreciative that people give time. And um, the horizontal audience is a bit difficult. I'd love to be able to see you all, but uh, it's a strange thing. But look, thank you for coming, yes. You once wrote, um, and I'll just read something else that, and there's going to be a few of these today, but you once, once wrote, in order to be truthful, we must do more than speak the truth. We must also hear truth. We must also receive truth. We must also act upon truth. We must also search for truth, the difficult truth, within us and around us. We must devote ourselves to truth, otherwise we are dishonest and our lives are mistaken. God, grant us the strength and courage to be truthful. How old were you when you realised that life was sad and painful and that truth was elusive? Well, I don't... Um I don't believe... Is that a drone overhead? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I, don't, I don't believe it's only sad. I believe it's also joyous. And I think we, we understand uh, these two things. But I guess the culture I grew up in, uh, that we all grew up in, does put a bit of emphasis as a necessity for happiness and all that. And sometimes covers up. Um, the, the beautiful sadness, the wretched sadness, the, the painful sadness, which we all must face and go through sooner or later, somehow or other. And I was fascinated as a child that this was a real part of life and I noticed that people in their sadness were partic often particularly beautiful and particularly truthful in their sadness. And so, look, a, a child easily sees that and it's remained a source of interest to me, the degree to which we carry it. And it's a beautiful part of us, that that part, of which is suffering at that moment. We may have lost a loved one, etc. All those... I lost my dog the other day, 14 years, a 14-year relationship and the dog died. So even that is a sad, poignant thing. And so it's the, it's the stuff of poets and songwriters have traditionally always... Um, been drawn into that. Reminds me of that Bertolt Brecht quote, he who laughs hasn't heard the news. <laughs> y yes, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Has, hasn't heard the bad news. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you, as a child, you actually had a horrific accident and you found yourself in a cocoon of aloneness and, and sadness and spent uh, a great deal of time in hospital. Tell us about that. Oh, um, yeah, that was... Um yeah, an early childhood accident where I was... The, the rubbish tip used to be where I played because there were no... That, that's just where I played. It was very interesting. There were some good rubbish tips <laughs> nearby. And um, I just was with my cousin and I stood in a, a pit uh, which was disguised. Someone had been burning rubber tyres and there was all this hot ash and wire all tangled and I stood in this pit up deeper than my knees and then was caught in the wire in this red hot ash and it was a horrific burns injury and I remember sort of my cousin dragged me out of it, Robert dragged me out of it and I remember grabbing the skin was all peeling off and I grabbed it and pulled it off like a whole stocking etc. So I had these really vivid memories of pain and and, and then this meant I couldn't walk for about six months and um, it's a long story, but it was a time of great loneliness and hearing children playing outside the window and, and wanting to be out there with them. But also discovering neighbours' attention to me and this love of this little boy who's there in great pain and to change the dressings was always so horrifically painful. Um, many of us have these exper similar experiences and... Um, Robert was very courageous and brave in carting me to a doctor on his bicycle on a Saturday afternoon. It was a, a pitiful story. This whimpering boy, you know, who was laid on a doctor's bench and covered with, uh, what did they use back then, chloroform, and they knocked me out. And um, Robert, I lost track of Robert, who was a lovely man. He carried me on his shoulders, and um, I always wondered what happened to Robert. He drifted away to Queensland later in life. And I was looking at a book, talking of books, um, in a bookshop of the Australian experience in Vietnam. And there was a very famous photograph on the cover of a helicopter coming down 
to a group of soldiers, Australian soldiers, who'd just been on patrol and they're all ragged and torn. And there was Robert as one of these soldiers. And I, so I discovered what became of Robert on a book cover, this sort of war-torn um, soldier who in fact had done a similar act of bravery and courage in a minefield incident, had carried wounded soldiers on his shoulders and he started off with me. <laughs> <laughs> No. Hello. Yep. Am I on now? Yes. You're on, David. You mentioned the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, is that when the duck first appeared in your imagination? It, w it was, actually, yes. I, I was working as a political cartoonist for a daily newspaper in Melbourne and I had to finish the cartoon by 9.30 in the morning. It was a strict deadline and uh, I was looking at the daily news and... And a number of my friends were in Vietnam as conscripts. I was conscripted, but because I was deaf in one ear, I was not wanted. And, um, and there was a terrible minefield incident, and I think a lot of young people, young men were killed, and I, I just fell into a bit of despond, and I couldn't... I didn't... I felt I had to address it, but I couldn't. Who could? And so I just did this, invented this duck cartoon. It's a mad escape into fantasy about, you know, from the troubles of the world, I climb aboard my duck and ride into the sunset or something, I can't remember. And the, the editor looked at it with sort of dismay and said, I don't understand this, but I, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've operated on that principle with editors <laughs> e ever since. You just... They, they just shake their heads, but they sort of like something. That's how it works. You're actually, in one of your new books, Musings from the Inner Duck, you write a little poem called Doug, Duck Whistle Politics. So very different from Dog Whistle Politics. In every human being is something we're not seeing down there in the muck. It's the inner duck. So blow the duck whistle gently, at least you can blow it mentally. And what you thought was lacking will gladly rise up quacking. And with this joyful meekness and rounded yellow beakness so beautifully unfurled, go out and love the world. <laughs> it's such a beautiful, beautiful poem. Thank you. Yeah. Michael, where, where, do you, where do you find proof of love in the world today? What, what is that, David? What? Where do you find proof of love? Proof of love? Love in the world today. Um. Oh, I don't, can't give you the address, but I'll... <laughs> <laughs> I'll go on, please. But, but, <laughs> yeah, well, well, exactly. I mean, it's as you grow older, as you know, the, the, that word expands and expands and expands until you realise it is all everywhere and all about, and it is much more profound and complex and simple than we had imagined, so... The evidence is is kind of overwhelming, and um, I think who carries it? Who keeps this idea alive? I'm not sure that the idea is um, celebrated in in a in the way it might be or understood. It's too confined to couples or something like that. I, it, it seems to me. I think. One must work with love. I mean, the artist in particular works with love. If you, 
if you want to create anything and touch and reach other in the world, you have to love what you're doing and what you're making and creating. I think the creative act is not creative unless it's loving. And I think Mozart said something similar, you know. Um, genius is, is only love. And I think, I think that's true. I, I think we all have the capacity for genius and natural genius if we dare just to know that it is there within us and open ourselves if we create. And I'm not talking about just creating a piece of writing or a painting. I'm talking about creating our lives as well and creating friendships or just, just the, the creative act. And Yeah, it has to be loving. And I think it's an offering. And this might always sound a bit wet and the sort of thing that the Murdoch press doesn't like me, anybody to say. I don't know, but it, it gets mocked, the idea of love. You're a lefty lovey. As, as they say. And it's rather a sad and forlorn failure of life to be able to mock someone and, and, and say, oh, lefty-lovey. Because no one knows how to do it exactly. You have to find it as you go. And, um, but, but, but I think it lies at the heart of any creative, the making of a cartoon, a painting, a poem, a song. You can't say that J.S. Bach didn't write that music without great devotion and wanting to calm the world or to, you know, move the world to some truth and love. And, and we are all the beneficiaries of all those people who've worked with love. Mm. I wonder whether this notion of loving actually is related to your notion of, of discovering and feeding the inner duck. Because you say, feed the inner duck, not with human news or greedy things that suck, but give it quiet views, comments from the moon, opinions from the sky, the insights of a tune, the wisdom of a sigh. I've just come back from Bali and you see a lot of ducks. And yeah. the senses are constantly fed by the pageantry and simplicity of daily life, despite all the assaults of globalisation on that island. But... Um, I think one of the things we love about Bali is that there's this reverence for the spirit life, mm. you know, for what is unseen as well as what's seen. Mm. So when you write comments from the moon and opinions from the sky, there's something in that that harks back to those animist traditions. I wonder if you could just speak to that. Um, yeah, well, it harks back to those traditions, that pageantry you mentioned, and... Um, of the ordinary and the everyday and the natural. But you see, it also harks back for me to childhood and I, I often keep returning to this theme that the child does uh, intuitively uh, understand the spirit. It has a spiritual life and um, it has an inner life and it lies on the child lies on its pillow and dreams or fears or what it needs or yearns quite a lot it's very rich and and i i spoke a couple of days ago about this thing we used to do as children and i'm sure a lot of you did it um and a lot of uh, contemporary children might not do it anymore we used to make fairy gardens, little... There weren't so many toys when I was a boy, so you had to create your own 
fun or whatever, you, you know, your own little fantasy. So we used to make fairy gardens in the backyard or in a little corner of the backyard. My backyard was pretty bleak because there were no trees in my suburb, so you had to sort of create trees somehow in your mind. But no, you'd get little petals from flowers and little pe uh, pebbles and twigs and create a little imaginary little little land where the fairies would come that night and um, the, the elves and the pixies. So this spirit already happening, you see this imaginative and loving, made with great love. The child could only make it with great attention and to detail and this love and yearning. And so you go to bed at night, get up in, all excited, you get up in the morning and you go out and sure enough the fairies have been because you see the marks, you see where, whatever, you find they were there. And David, I, th I think I've always carried that memory as being a lovely metaphor for the creative act in, and it carries through to the way I would make a painting now. It is made with the same kind of make-believe or the same yearning that just as you want the fairies to come into it, you want the spirits to come into your painting or people to be able to take something from it and visit it. I think it's very... I think a writer would be much the same. You're creating a fairy garden, if you can get the metaphor. A great innocence in it, too, apart from all the knowing, the cult of cleverness, as I like to call it sometimes, but to, to retain that um, innocent yearning and loving... Do you think our devices take us, take us away? Sorry? Our, our devices, our smartphones, our laptops, our, our iPads, do you think our devices take us away from the heavens and the stars and They're the possibility probably, of fairy yeah. gardens? Yes, I think it's pretty obvious that they do, um, that their device does. And Yeah, I have a phone on me, etc., but we have to learn how to use it so... Um, yeah, they do. They do. And it's also conforming, isn't it? The, the, all the modes of using it's exactly the same as this fella does it. We're all locked into that. It's a kind of technological fascism in a way. And, um, <laughs> and we, we're, we do imitate our technology unconsciously. Eventually, if our parents' generation were imitating the motor car and roaring around, I don't know, being powerful or something. I think we're imitating the digital technology and, and we click on things and click off them and uh, I don't know. Just, just a theory. You, it, you, it affects us, yeah. You dreamt, you dreamt up your own device though, didn't you? It's a last-minute gift suggestion. It's called the Amazing Global Positioning Sausage Navigation Device. Exactly. Um, <laughs> what, what do we do with that sausage navigation system? <laughs> Look, yeah, the, 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 that's the little sausage that hangs on the, from your rear vision mirror and you have to, it spins and you sort of have to follow where it's pointing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there are two factors. Uh, I was probably incredibly serious when I did that drawing. <laughs> because, you see, um, when I was a boy, I used to work in a butcher shop. I worked for, in a butcher shop from the age of about 11 to the age of 24, would you believe, just on a Saturday morning or after school. And I used to make sausages and mince up all the meat. And, and I, I reckon if you got all the sausages I made and you stretched them, it would go to the moon, it would go <laughs> round the moon and back again. So sausages are really important. I don't eat them anymore. But, um, and I can link sausages like a champion. You know, I can link, you know how you can, a special trick. 
And uh, also, I used to love inventing things as a boy. I was called the inventor at school, and I would invent all kinds of potions. For When we were on the monkey bars, we'd get uh, blisters, and I would bring, invent potions and say, rub this on your hand, etc. And a mi my microscope was my greatest toy. I spent a lot of time hunched over a desk looking at flies, wings, and things like that. I was the sort of inventor. And I reckon the best artists are inventors. And I think, I think Picasso went to visit Paul Klee in his studio and said, I'm going off to visit Klee in his laboratory. Mm. I, I relate to that. So apart from the sausage navigation device, you've also got a, today's madness index. And, um, you know, you follow the rate rises and falls quite closely, don't you? Exactly. It's a very strange behaviour rate, uh, <laughs> which I think has risen by three percentage points recently. <laughs> There's also the rate of general dismay and incomprehension about life. That's up by 5.7%. <laughs> the cactus index rose 23%. What is the cactus index? <laughs> I don't know. Did, did, did I write that or did you? I, I, it's, the cactus, well, in my language, the cactus means everything's ruined. They, people say to you, how are you, do, you today? You say, I'm cactus. Is that, is, that, is that commonly understood? Yeah, yeah, oh, it is, right. I lose touch with what's real very easily. <laughs> yeah, cactus index. <laughs> is there something improper about the cactus index <laughs> that I don't understand? I, no, I'm it's just, just fairly normal, yeah. Yeah. You, say, you also said the, the, the fear of terror, terrorism has held steady, but it's well below the dread of swooping magpies, speed cameras and public toilets. <laughs> say that about the magpies again. Now, did I really write this? You or? did. You did. You did. <laughs> Look, I had the knock on the head a few months ago. I've, I'm a concussion victim, and... You know, it just seemed to knock out a whole lot of my memory, which is kind of not so bad. <laughs> but I... You did. Like you said, the fear of terrorism has held steady, but it is well below the dread of swooping magpies, oh. speed cameras and public toilets. Oh, right, yeah, that's possible, because of speed... Yeah, I had... A, I had a, look, sorry to go on about my childhood, but I do remember a significant moment when I used to wear braces, right? There's braces to, braces to hold my trousers up. I'm about seven... And I could never do them up. And if I went to the toilet, I'd have to get my mother to do them up. I don't know. I couldn't get them over the back or something. And, and uh, we, I was at Namurka, this town. In, we had a picnic at Namurka, a country town. And I had to walk across a football oval to the toilet. And I came back holding my braces, a little seven-year-old. And it's, these attack, magpies attacked me. And, <laughs> and I tried to run, and I fell down. And, <laughs> And, and it was pitiful in the extreme and a, a, tra a traumatic memory. And, and then it turned up in the cartoon. So that, <laughs> sorry to bore you with these stories too, too much. Um, Self-indulgent stories. Not at all, not at all. Mm. Where, does, where does Mr Curley come from and why do you think he's penetrated the Australian collective heart in the way he has? Um, uh, Mr Curley, uh, that person with a curl on the head, that, or that, yeah... Uh, that person, is it even a person? I don't know. It's a de depiction. It's a hieroglyph which, which might represent the human spirit. I don't know. 
it's child, it's adult, it's male, it's female. It's pre-birth, it's like an embryo or something. But, um, uh, well, it's what an artist does who works with a, pa- with a bit of paper and a pen. It's different to what a writer does because this free-moving hand wants to play like we used to do when we were on the telephone, you know, the doodle. So, you know, I'd have a little head, and a prof- always in profile, and a pen, and you're thinking, oh, I want to play with this a bit. So the pen just s- suddenly starts making a curl on the head, just for the heck of it. And, and just because it's a whim that pleases you, and often people find this a bit implausible, that you would put something into a picture for no good reason. But you do, you just put it in. Because it pleases you. It's like cooking, you know. I think this needs a bit of oregano or something. And, and you just, just the whim and the joy. So it's an invention. So it starts as an invention. And then, in retrospect, I look at it and I say, well, what's that about? What's this thing like a question mark? And I came to the view that it was... Um, I came to the view that it was representing a kind of a peculiarity and that we are all peculiar. As my grandmother used to say, the whole world is mad except you and me and even you're a little strange. <laughs> and, and, and I think a lot of us probably heard that one off our grandparents. And, and so this beautiful, this delightful strangeness in us all is of course the strangeness in Mozart, is in Bach, is in this man or that woman that, that makes them do that unique thing. And I, I guess, and that's a heavy sort of intellectualised thing, but you have to come up with it because people demand you to interpret <laughs> it. But, but it just starts off as a whim, and in the whim is great wisdom. Yeah, and Mr Curley plays flute in the rain and he rolls around in the mud and mm. loves horticulture and mm. bird watching and winemaking and music and friendship. I had this thought before coming here this morning, what would Mr Curley think of Donald Trump and what would he say to Donald Trump? I I think he would just sit and stare for a long time and and listen. I I really don't know because the point is, David, I don't control these characters I might create because it's odd. Part of the lovely delusion of making a character is that you don't entirely own them or create them. Once you... They are born on the paper. They take on their own integrity and their own life. And that's true. And I think I've got to be careful what I have them do. Would I want them... They're like your children or someone else's children. They're they're innocent and you've got to treat them very carefully. And So I don't know what he would... I can't speak for Mr Curley about Donald Trump. Mr Curley's friend... Mr Curley's friend Vasco Pajama, I think, must be one of the sweetest of all the characters, and in one of your cartoons, um, Vasco Pajama writes to Mr Curley, says, Dear Mr Curley, what's worth doing and what's worth having? And Mr Curley replies, it's worth doing nothing and having a rest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, It is worth that, and I I haven't done enough of it, I don't think. I probably was giving myself a lecture when I wrote that. <laughs> and, um, you know, to rest is to let things grow back. And, uh, yeah, there's no rest for the wicked, as my father used to say. 
<laughs> is it tiring being Michael Lunig? Do you, do you, I mean, do you carry... We're all tired of being who we are, patiently, <laughs> aren't we? Um, and well, I, look, yeah, look, I'll be frank. Or if you're asking this, I take your question seriously. Is there time when... I, here am I, sitting here on a stage, and these people are sitting here... They've come here to maybe to listen to me, or maybe they're your fans, David. I'm not sure, <laughs> but, but, but whatever. All you know, of them, but, but every the, single one. The truth is, the way our society is organised, there are people who become for for accident. No one doesn't set out to be notable and seen. For me, starting out was how in God's name will I ever earn my earn my keep and make my way in the world. And so I see I was not much good at formal education and I fell out of it too early and went into the factories and things like this. So, uh, and then, like a musician, like all these young kids who are busking in Byron Bay, they have little dreams that they're going to be able to make a living from singing songs. So to be a cartoonist, I started drawing for what we called the underground magazines back in the 60s. They were kind of anti-war magazines or music. It was, a, it was a great renaissance of creativity. Lovely music was happening in the Beatles, etc. Very inspiring time. So uh, I never learned to draw and I never went to art school, but I did what children do and love to do. I drew, and I drew funny little pictures. And then one day someone published one, right? And so they say... Oh, we like that. Here's $10 for it. Will you do us another one for next... And so it goes, and so it builds up. And you don't end, think you'd end up sitting on a stage and people taking you seriously. <laughs> sort of. And, and that's true. That's a very honest feeling, and I'm always quite astonished. I can't quite relate to it, although I feel quite natural and at home here. I, I can't quite understand that I must be Michael Lunig. And I, <laughs> and I don't disown it, and I, find, I still find it a bit implausible. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, there's a bewilderment in it. But not mostly, like, I walk away from here and I'm just a normal guy on the street, obviously. And I do value that above all things, that one, one is just... Just Michael Lunig, <laughs> which is the kid at school who gets in trouble for being a no-hoper uh, or whatever. So, no, but it's an interesting phenomenon, the idea of a stage, a crowd, an individual. And I, I, I find it odd and it's got a lovely side to it and it's got a strange, peculiar side to it which I don't fully understand. Well, it's always difficult to see yourself as others see you, but I, I'm sure it's got something to do with the fact that you speak to the collective soul, the individual soul, the collective heart, the individual heart, and you allow us to think that it might be a good idea to take a rest. And, and you, you know, just in some of the letters from, from Vasco Pajama to Mr mm. Curley, and, and Vasco says he's made a, a great and wonderful discovery, the discovery of his own stupidity. And in a way you celebrate the, the galoots and the dumb clucks and the silly billies, the bird brains, the dingbats, the buffheads, the bumpkins, the wallies and the dunderheads. That's that, that, your yes. words, but you're celebrating that in all of us. Well, because we have it in all of us, uh, all of us and we, tuck, 
we tuck it away. Like everybody is uniquely stupid too. They're, everybody is uniquely intelligent. Every culture has its own stupidity or its own, um, its own virtue and delight and beauty and, and its own ugliness. And um, I, think, I think this is true. Um, and, you know, we're, without the dumb clucks, I mean, where would we be? Um, and there's something I was thinking of to say about this, but it's escaped uh, through this hole in my head. Um, uh, yeah, no, no I, I, I do, I don't exactly celebrate it. Oh, I know what it was. Because we live, sometimes you get the feeling you're living in this world of too much excellence. And I know excellence, so it's a lovely thing, with, you know. And, but, but I was listening to the Sydney piano competition recently, or bits of it, which was on ABC FM, and there was so much high achievement and excellence, I was almost fainting with the very, <laughs> the sound of it, and, and everywhere is peak experience, and, and everything's so fantastic and amazing and awesome, or whatever, and I think, no, it's not. It's also sitting in a chair and having a cup of tea, etc. Now, I know that sounds very cute and humble, but it's true. I can't stand this over-intellectualised, excellent, ambitious going upwards because my whole practice has been about going downwards. And if I've <laughs> ever found any good piece of work that I'd, I've loved, I've done it through a kind of regression rather than a progression. And um, I, I, it, a regression is not very comfortable. It's painful to lose the plot in the midst of creativity and to lose your way and to feel distraught and worthless and sort of hopeless. And that has been my best sort of process, I think, if I'm honest. When I set out to do something and it's not working and I fall into dismay and a feeling of worthlessness, and so I'm sort of becoming infantile a bit and a bit emotionally distraught. But then the idea is that you stay there, you stay with it, you stay with it. Someone quoted Winston Churchill to me the other day, never been a great fan of Sir Winston Churchill, but um, someone said, look, when you're going through hell, when you're going through hell, just keep going. And I think the creative act, particularly when there's a deadline, as you know, David, when there's a deadline, is a bit hellish at times. And But there, in that that breakdown, which is when one starts to disintegrate internally, things rearrange and new connections are made also. And, and we free, and there's a liberation when everything is lost. There's a liberation, and that is what the creative artist seeks to be lost and to be inappropriate. I mean, there would be no art if everything was appropriate. Inappropriateness is, imp is really important in its own way. The things that don't normally belong together suddenly belong together. You mentioned the, the cup of tea, <coughs> the cup of tea. So heartening and leavening and, and comforting, isn't it? Yes. And, you, and you say the world so monstrous and incomprehensible, so crashing and raging out of control, so hurtling and dangerous, so wild and wicked and twisted, so complex and ever-changing. But you and me, look at us, so fragile and flawed, so vulnerable and tired, so worried and wanting, small and powerless and in the dark. So now, make the cup of tea. 
I like that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And we all know it's true. And we all sit at our kitchen tables and say, the world has gone mad. And then we have our dinner, you know. In your in your one of your recent books, you you there's a lovely cartoon of Bert making a bucket list, which is a catalogue of all the things he never ever wants to do again. <laughs> a bucket list. What's, yes. what's in your bucket? What's in your on your in your bucket list of never evers? Yes, I've got a lot of those things. I never particular. Oh, I'm happy to do things again, but I don't particularly seek to do much. I'm not craving to travel much or find new peak experiences. I think life's pretty overwhelming just walking from here to the <laughs> green room. <laughs> so so it's, it's all okay. But there's this frantic world I live in and, you know, you just anyone spends two hours in an airport terminal knows it's a frantic world. Now, where are you going? What are you doing? And, um, and good luck to them. I'm not going to be a prude about it, but I can't quite... Just, you know, to walk down the street alone and talk to a stranger is also pretty good. And uh, it's all possible. The realm of possibility is one of my favourite realms, yeah. And, and, and uh, look, this is truthful. It's what, it's what I have found to be true. I'm old enough now to be able to say that and know that I'm not just going through a phase, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you ever feel just unambiguously, totally happy? Um, or is it always washed through with the, that awareness of the pain of the world and the sadness that you no, talk about? Look, I think it's integrated. I, I have this other thing, what they call... It's, someone said to me the other day, they mentioned the word emulsion, the mind as an emulsion. When you bring the opposites together, you know, emulsion is when you get an oil and a water and it blends together. And I think I don't quite know the word happiness and I don't know the... W I know momentary despair, but um, I think generally I've had an impulse towards holding them together and I don't get off too much on the ideas of good and evil. Um, and it's, it's kind of a blended state. I don't think it's a neutralised, nothing state. I, I think it's a really lovely kind of calm state of knowing of happiness and knowing of despair and somehow they hold together and interweave and and it's it you know, it means you can't take part in a lot of conversations or go on you know what is it what's the the show I never watch um, <laughs> uh, you know where all the people on the panel and Tony what's his name talk yeah, you know, you've got to have a view, don't you? And you've got to say, that bloke is, doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not, I can't do that so well. You, you have to, to describe true happiness. I think it's worth reading. How may a man measure his own happiness? He must first go to his cupboard and take out all his neckties. Then he must lay them out on the ground, end to end. Then he must measure the length of this line of neckties. And that measurement, that distance is exactly the same as his distance from true happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. But, 
Do you own any neckties, Michael Looney? <laughs> no, I look, I can't. Talking about the national treasure thing, which I've some, was someone, I got a letter saying, congratulations, you're a living national treasure. I, oh, <laughs> what is that? And then, and then the guy, it says, this is invitation, you're going to be made a treasure at the Sydney Town Hall in a grand ceremony with the Prime Minister and all that. And now it said dress code, um, I think it was something formal or semi-formal or something that involved a suit. Now, look, I've never owned a suit since I was a schoolboy. Not that I'm against suit, uh, suits, I just can't find one that suits me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I gave up and I rang up this fellow and I said, look, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't do suits. And he said, well, if you don't do suits, you don't have to come. So I said, <laughs> you don't have to come. And I said, well, OK, it suits me. <laughs> <laughs> And so I missed out on the great night, thank God. <laughs> I, I, I have seen photos of these national treasures all sitting up like little goodly children at a school photo and there's John Howard and all the band playing. I think, oh, thank God, I didn't get a suit. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I wouldn't do it. But as I've said, look, living national treasure, what comes with it? Nothing. You don't get, you don't get a concession on the bus. <laughs> You don't get some sort of a cap to wear or a T-shirt. Just nothing. And, and I think, well, OK. Um, uh, but, but look, happiness is not as important as kind of this thing which old-fashioned term, mental health. You know, just a bit sane, a bit sane. And I know that's a bit of a politically incorrect word now to be sane. But look, the loss of one's mind is happening all the time and then we, we put it back together again. But it is truly a sad thing to see someone lose their marbles, as you would say, in, as you know, my father would say. And it's happening all the time. It's a tragedy and it's sad and it's difficult to understand sometimes. But the maintenance of coherence and a sense of meaning in life is, is what is better than this happiness which is peddled, you know, as a in coloured lights, but I guess that might be happiness, mightn't it? Where life has a meaning or has a sense of something that holds you together. And it's, it might be called sanity in a casual way, that we remain coherent to each other. But because we live in a pretty incoherent culture, and, uh, and, and it, it, that, that stresses me a lot. I don't understand what's going on. So that's why I always regress back to what I used to understand was going on. <laughs> Michael, more than 20 years ago, you, I think for the Sunday Age, you decided that instead of doing cartoons, you'd write prayers. Mm. Why was that? Well, because I grew up I, just in a nominally Christian sort of a setting. You know, it wasn't... My father was a lapsed Catholic who became a communist in the trade union movement and... Um, so there was no heavy God hovering over my house. But my grandmother and that, they talked little prayers and they were just light-hearted things, you know, a little... You'd say a little prayer. Or my father would say, God strike me pink or something like that. <laughs> so the word God was floating about and eventually I sort of went along to this little church and did communion and that and it was kind of a... A lyricism to it, there was sacred text, there was singing and choirs, and I kind of liked it in this western suburbs of Melbourne where there was not much lyricism or, you know, uh, this kind of thing. So that was interesting. Uh, but then I went through the thing of, oh, well, that's all, you know, it didn't 
you didn't exactly reject it, you just left it behind. But then I noticed my generation was becoming phobic about this word God, and they took it too literally, in my view, and it became like this aggressive atheism, which I thought was not understanding the word. And I think the word God, for me, became a poetic word. It's not understood theologically, it's understood as a kind of people's poetry, too. And, and it might mean many things. I, I, I don't have any definition. I've, I've always said it's a one-word poem, and um, it, it can be managed in whatever way. So it was a bit of a reaction to a lot of aggressive intellectual kind of rejection of lyricism and open-mindedness. And I thought, I'll just play with this word and use it as my forebears may have, as Bach used it, maybe, or Mozart. It, 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 it exists in the tradition. So I thought, well, why not have a little prayerfulness and just the idea of a prayer, the sincerity of yearning. Um, and, and yeah, and that was a bit, it was a bit blasphemous to do this. A lot of my peer groups said, oh, he's found God. <laughs> and I think, no, I was just probing around with it and it might be a way of saying something that is otherwise not sayable so it's somewhere about that I wasn't sure what I was doing I was but I was going through a time of upheaval and grief at the time yeah this is Michael Lenig's prayer of gratitude we rejoice and give thanks for earthworms bees ladybirds and broody hens for humans tending their gardens talking to animals cleaning their homes and singing to themselves, for the rising of the sap, the fragrance of growth, the invention of the wheelbarrow and the existence of the teapot. We give thanks, we celebrate and give thanks. Would you all please thank Michael Lunig? Hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016. You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.